Okay. Good morning, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. Okay. Thank you so much. Awesome. Is this on? It's not on. Is it? There we go. It's on now. Fantastic. Great. Um, it's a joy to be with you. Joy to worship with you. Should be on. Okay, there we go. All right, fantastic. Um, you know, wonderful to see some new faces here. Thank you uh, for visiting us, those of you who are new. Um, thank you to all of you who helped us hand out flyers yesterday. Um, um, got a lot more of that to do in the months ahead. Um, as we've been saying, we want people to know we're here. Now we, we desire to be a place where God's Word is faithfully taught, where the Gospel is held out. Excuse me. I'm bad news with this, hey? So those of you who don't know, last week I knocked the water off. This week I'm knocking the mic down. Um, we, 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 we want to be a lighthouse, right? We want to be um, a place that's holding forth the truth clearly so that people can come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So we are back in the book of Philippians today, uh, as we were last week. Specifically, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. A little bit, otherwise, I think I'm going to whack it again. Okay. So, last week we saw that Paul's main desire, the thing he said would make his joy complete, was that the Philippians would live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more specifically, we saw, uh, as Paul unpacked what he meant by that, that he wanted them to courageously and intentionally seek to advance the gospel together. And he wanted them to conduct themselves in a humble, considerate, servant-hearted ways that promotes unity. Okay? So that's where we are in this book, uh, as Paul writes from prison to the Philippian church. Now, Paul now turns his attention, turns our attention to Jesus and calls us to look to him as the ultimate illustration of living life in these ways. Courageously, intentionally advancing the gospel and humbly, selflessly, servant-heartedly um, uh, blessing others. Okay. That's what we'll be looking at today. Before we begin to look at that, though, let me ask you a question. Would you be impressed, and you don't actually have to answer this, but would you be impressed, just think about it for yourself, if I told you that I had recently jumped off a diving board? Okay. Now, that is just a silly question, but the reason I raise it is because I'm sure the very, next, the very first question that comes to mind for you is, well, what, what sort of diving board are we talking about here? Are we talking about one of those diving boards that's just 30 centimeters, 60 centimeters above the water? Or are we talking about 
one of those diving boards that's like 10, 20 meters above the water. Um, crazy enough, in the men's high dive world championships, they jump from 27 meters above the water. And they're doing all sorts of crazy fancy tricks and whatnot when they do that. But I would just, I would genuinely just be impressed if any of you just jumped off that and just went straight down. I would be plenty impressed. Now, here's why I raise this, okay? It's because in today's message, um, in today's passage, Paul's asking the Philippians and all Christians to follow Jesus' example of humbling himself, right? Jesus' example of going from a high place and bringing himself down low. And unless we really appreciate just how high Jesus came down from and just how low he came down, we'll miss just how impactful this passage really should be to us. As we'll see, Jesus' incarnation and earthly mission is really the absolute greatest jump, if you want. The greatest descent, the greatest lowering of oneself from one level to another that could ever be possible. Read with me as I read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude all of you, the attitude of Christ, right? Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul exhorts the Philippians and all Christians to have the same mindset as Jesus. And in order to fully appreciate Jesus' example, in order to fully appreciate the mindset he had that he lived out, we need to understand, first of all, his original high position. Look at verse 6 with me. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does Paul mean here by saying that Jesus was in the form of God? Well, some of your translations may vary. I know the NIV says he was in the very nature of God. And I think that's perhaps a little bit more helpful in understanding what Paul's communicating here. Because the idea behind this word is not just resemblance, okay? Like, oh, it's the same shape, looks the same. No, the idea is the same content, the same essence. Essentially, this verse is telling us that Jesus was God, very God. Other passages in the New Testament 
tell us this truth very clearly as well. One of the more famous ones, more commonly known, is from John 1, where Jesus is referred to as the Word. And it says there, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, of course, we're dealing with very difficult truth here. The Trinity is difficult for any of us, no matter how long we've been Christians, to fully wrap our minds around. But in essence, what the doctrine of the Trinity tells us is that there's three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that each of those persons is fully God. Okay? And though they're distinct persons, they're also fully unified. Jesus is God, very God. If we engage our minds as fully as we possibly can in this, trying to wrap our minds around it, we will only begin to scratch the surface. This is a passage that's almost impossible to preach because you can never really do it justice. But let's try. Jesus is eternal. He always has been. He is holy, holy, holy. He is utterly pure and good and beautiful and completely without sin. He is the creator, the one who spoke this universe into existence. Think about all that power. And think about the incredible ease with which Jesus exercised it. Simply by speaking. Psalm 8 describes creation metaphorically by referring to the stars and the moon as simply the work of his fingers. Just his fingers. No muscle required. No sweat required. And he didn't just make everything. He rules over everything. Moment by moment. Over every detail. In the book of Job, God asks Job if he can oversee the earth's rotation around the sun. If he can hunt prey for the lion. If he can tell the waves of the sea exactly where they should stop. If he can tell the lightning bolts where they should go. God can and God does. Mankind can barely begin to understand these things, never mind oversee them constantly. And when passages of Scripture give us glimpses of the throne room in heaven, what do we see? We just see descriptions of amazing, angelic beings hovering around God's throne, praising Him absolutely nonstop. To be God, very God, is to be the most worthy of praise in all the universe, infinitely more powerful and holy and beautiful and glorious than anything or anyone else. To be God, very God, is to have absolutely everything you want accessible to you at a snap of your fingers. And to be God, very God, is to have thousands and thousands of angels at your command. And to be waited on and served and praised and worshipped every single moment for all eternity. 
But Paul says, Jesus didn't feel the need to grasp onto this, to tenaciously hold onto it. No, he was willing to let it go. He was willing to leave his high and exalted position to take on the limitations of humanity and live life in this sin-cursed and broken world. We need to realize just how far Jesus humbled himself. Right? We need to know his high position and we need to know how far he humbled himself. Verse 7 tells us, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Some of you will have heard me talk about this before, but one of my old Bible professors used to caution us against having what he called a Clark Kent Christology. A Clark Kent Christology. For those of you who don't know your superheroes very well, Clark Kent is the ordinary, everyday name of Superman as he lives the more normal aspects of his life. But you see, the thing with Clark Kent is that he only looks human. He's not human. He doesn't actually have the limitations of humanity. And Jesus is not like that. Even though he is God, very God, he is man, very man. This is another incredible uh, truth that will blow our brains the more we try and think about it. Okay, The hypostatic union, where basically what we have is 100% God united with 100% man. When Jesus became man... He remained God, but he also became fully man and took on the limitations of humanity. An illustration I've heard that is helpful with this, I think, is an illustration of a multimillionaire who has his credit card in his pocket. Okay, He's still a multimillionaire. He still owns all that money. And he still, if he wanted to access it, could access it in a moment. But he makes a commitment to go ahead and live life for a season without accessing those bank accounts, without throwing his big name around, without using all his connections to get various things. And he lives as if... He doesn't have all that money, right? When Jesus became man, he didn't cease to be God in any way. But he chose to live within the limitations of humanity. He's truly man, fully man, but without sin. Jesus would get hungry. He would get tired. In fact, on one occasion in the Gospels, we see Jesus asleep in a boat after uh, a very busy period of ministry. And remember, a crazy storm comes up and the disciples are panicking and Jesus is still out like a log. He's exhausted. 
I was talking to a devout Muslim once, and his major objection to Christianity was the idea of a holy, infinite God becoming man. At one point he said to me with total incredulity and disgust, he says, come on, God pooped? God pooped? Okay? And yes, it is funny you think about it in one sense, but think about this in another way, right? We absolutely, we just were talking about the holiness and transcendence of this God. How all-powerful He is. And it is, it should blow our minds that that God would become a man and have to go to the bathroom. And of course, He only does that, as we'll continue to see through this passage, because he's humbling himself in order to serve us. This Muslim's view of a high and exalted God had no room for a God who would also humble himself. But thankfully, our God is both transcendent and glorious and so full of love that he would, that he did. He did not just become a man, but he became an embryo in Mary's womb who had to be born. And a baby who needed to drink his mother's milk. He needed his parents to clean him after he peed or pooped. He needed to learn to walk. He needed to learn to talk. He wasn't born in a palace, but in a manger with animals. He didn't grow up with a family of any wealth or notoriety. He was a child of a carpenter. And he submitted himself to his parents' authority and obeyed them. The God of the universe obeying sinful earthly parents. Theologians will sometimes speak of Jesus' incarnation, of him becoming man and his time on earth as his humiliation. Because truly, all of it was. Every single moment was him humbling himself. Every single moment was him serving us. He couldn't just come to earth and die. Because he needed to live a life, uh, an entire life, <laughs> in which he obeyed God in everything. Right? As the Gospels put it, he needed to fulfill all righteousness. Only then could he not just take the penalty we deserve for our sins, but also give us the perfect reward he had earned for a perfectly sinless and God-honoring life. Our passage continues and says this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death. Are you willing? Who are you willing to die to serve? <laughs> I'm sure the list is fairly short. 
And when this passage goes on and says, even death on a cross, why does it say that? Why even death on a cross? Because, brothers and sisters, this is not just going to sleep and not waking up the next morning. This is the most shameful and torturous of deaths invented by man. Jesus made clear that he laid his life down by choice. That he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Came not to serve, or not to be served, rather, but to serve. We must know how high Jesus' original position was. We must know how far he humbled himself. And we must know how high God the Father exalted him. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Bible tells us in several places, humble yourself and God will exalt you. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. And Jesus is the perfect example of that. His humiliation is not the end of the story. His dead body inside the tomb is not the end of the story. God loves to exalt those who humble themselves in obedience to Him and in love and service to others. Again, try to wrap your mind around this passage. God has raised him from the dead. He has exalted him back to heaven and back to the throne. He has given him the name that is above every name. And every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. We're talking about the living and the dead. We're talking about the righteous and the wicked. We're talking about human beings and angelic beings. Both God-honoring and demons. Every knee will bow. And that does not mean every person will become believers and honor God. But it means rather that many will. And all those who remain in rebellion will now realize clearly they have lost. And Jesus is King. As many a preacher has said... Every person will either bow their knee to Jesus now and receive salvation, or they will bow their knee to Jesus then and face his judgment. But one way or another, every knee will bow. In order to appreciate this passage, we also need to think about Jesus' motivation. Jesus' motivation. He said a few times that he did this to serve us, to meet our greatest need. Jesus was pursuing our good. Jesus was loving us. He was considering us more important than himself. He was looking out for our, for our interests, right? Not his own. There's a reason Paul takes 
Jesus and puts him forth as the greatest example of those uh, attitudes and mindsets that he called us to last week. This is what it looks like to not just think about yourselves, but to think about others. And this might sound a little strange, but a second motivation is personal reward. Personal reward in the end. Okay? Personal reward in the end. The Bible time and time again calls us to selflessness. Calls us to dying to self. Okay? But the Bible is also... Uh, not afraid to motivate us by the fact that dying to self now is worth it because of the reward in the end. Okay. Now I want to be very clear here, very, very clear, that we're not talking here about saving yourself by anything you do in this life. Okay. We're saved, as Inshallah made very clear to us earlier, from Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, we're saved as a gift from God. And what saves us is Jesus' perfect life and death on our behalf. His imputed righteousness. His holy life. And that's what we've just been talking about in terms of Him meeting our need. Our greatest need. Our need for salvation. But the Bible tells us that as we die to self as we turn from sin, as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, even though that's difficult, even though it brings oftentimes suffering and trials and requires great perseverance, that in the end, it is all worth it. Anything we leave behind in this life, even things as precious, if need be, as relationships with family members, right? The Bible's clear that it's all worth it in the end. The Bible also tells us, right, that beyond salvation, God does reward faithfulness. Okay? We don't earn our salvation, but God does reward faithfulness. And again, this passage is so clear. Jesus is the best example of this. Jesus is rewarded and rewarded massively for his faithfulness and service. What else motivates Jesus? We see it at the end of verse 11. All of this is to the glory of God. All of this is to the glory of God. Right? That's in our, it's in our core values. Sola Deo Gloria. We want to do everything we do to the glory of God. Everything we do to the glory of God. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the personal name of God. Okay? Yahweh saves. What did the angel say? He said, shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from, his, from their sins. Right? Call him Yahweh saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
at the name of Yahweh saves. Every human to ever live will be reminded that God the Father made a way to save them, that He sent His only Son, and they will praise Him forever and ever and ever for it. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus secured praise for the Father forever and ever. How should we respond to all of this? Well, first of all, worship. Worship. This is a phenomenal passage, full of beautiful, awe-inspiring truth. We should never stop thinking on it and trying to comprehend it more and more fully. There's a lot here to move our hearts to worship when we think of what Jesus has done for us and how fully he obeyed the Father and sought the Father's glory. We also, and this is why Paul, this is this is why Paul put this in this passage, right? It's intended to be an example for us, for us to follow. We need to live humble, sacrificial lives of ministry and service, thinking often of Jesus' example to inspire us and to spur us on. And of course, motivated by the same things we see that Jesus was, the good of others, the glory of God, and willing to give up immediate comforts and pleasures and preferences because we remember that the reward in the end is well worth it. Brothers and sisters, if we really do keep this in mind, it'll pan out in dozens of small decisions. We'll be, we'll be committed to resolving conflicts instead of just continuing to be bitter and sulky. We'll die to petty preferences. We'll be thankful for the opportunity to see other people's needs considered, even when it puts us at some disadvantage. We'll be willing to serve others, especially when it's service that can't be seen or won't be trumpeted. And this will also shape some of our biggest decisions in life. Heather and I know some people in America who are in the process of adopting their third child internationally. And um, international adoption is insanely expensive. So that's the, fir- that's the first thing to notice with this, is just how much this couple has sacrificed to even just be able to afford uh, these adoptions. But this uh, third child they're adopting is now also going to be the second very special needs child that they're adopting. They already have one little boy who doesn't have hands, and this little girl that they're adopting is blind. Now, how many of us, right, would choose that? You know ahead of time. This child has great needs. They need a family, but they're also going to need a family that really, really has to serve them. A family that really 
is going to be inconvenienced by some of their physical struggles, physical challenges. And you choose to take that on anyway. Why? What motivates that? What motivates that is looking at Jesus. Right? Dying to self to serve others and glorify God. And of course, God will one day reward them for their selflessness. I challenged uh, the medical students at the Karankua GC the one night to think about the opportunity that you have. Um, the reality being that you can get a job anywhere in South Africa that pays well, right? Well, let's put it, you can get a, a decent paying job anywhere in South Africa. Let's put it that way. Um, and there's, there's not many occupations that give people those, um, th- that opportunity, right? So the reality is, as we think about this country and we think about the need for good Bible teaching churches in townships across this, in this country, in villages across this country, some people might be burdened to see the gospel go to those areas, but they might think, but how can I go and be a part of a church there? Because there's no jobs or there's no good paying jobs. And my challenge to you, um, medical students, to those of you who are in the medical professions, is that you actually have that opportunity. You can go be the answer to the prayers that a pastor is praying as he says, God, please bring, uh, bring some committed believers to help strengthen this church. Bring some, some committed believers to help us do more to reach the lost in this area. And again, what would motivate that? What would motivate a decision like that? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus and saying, okay, I'm going to let go of some preferences. I'm going to go live in an area that that I might not otherwise prefer to live in. But why am I doing that? I'm doing it to serve others, to glorify God. And I know that in the end I'll be rewarded for it. It'll be well worth it. Now look, I'm not saying that every one of you needs to do that. Definitely not. And it's interesting, the Bible doesn't give us a long list of, of, of certain uh, comforts or pleasures that God says, no, thou shalt not, you know, thou shalt not have a Mercedes. Thou shalt not live in this wealthy suburb. The Bible doesn't say that. But what the Bible does say is the Bible says, Look at Jesus. Look how much he was willing to let go. Look how far he was willing to stoop. Look how much he was willing to sacrifice in order to love and serve you and meet your needs. To see salvation take place. And to see God glorified. And be spurred on, be motivated, be inspired by him. So please, brothers and sisters, join me in trying to keep this in front of us, to keep this vision in front of us, where we are constantly thinking about life through this lens. If I'm going to live like Jesus, what am I willing to sacrifice in order to better 
advance the gospel, serve others, and glorify God. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing. We pray that you'd help us to love you more and more and more and be more and more amazed at you. Help us. God, we can't even get remotely close to living as selflessly as you did. But help us. Help us to grow in it. Help us make us more like Christ. And God the Father, please be exalted. Be glorified through our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.